We begin here, uh, we're looking at, you know, we left off with, it's been a few weeks, we left off with the beginning of a famine in the land, right? And uh, there, was, there was the vision that Joseph had, or the, the interpretation that Joseph had of the dream for, of the Pharaoh, and giving this interpretation, he told him that you are going to uh, have famine in the land, so we can now prepare for the famine in the land. We can store up for these several years, and then there's going to be famine for several years, and we can be prepared for it. And, and uh, we're looking at this beginning of the famine that now leads to something else that's really significant here in the history of Israel. Uh, it's significant here in our study as we see, continue to see Joseph as a type of Christ. And even in this, there's, there's 13 famines throughout the Bible, and this one has a specific purpose. Now, famine always has a purpose because God always has a purpose. And allowing for famine to take place is, is God moving things in a direction that they need to be moved. And with this famine specifically, it was used by God to drive the chosen family toward Joseph. Just as there's a coming day, that God will use the tribulation to drive Israel to Christ. And there's this type constantly throughout the study of Joseph, there's type of Christ in it. And we see that time and time again. And we're going to get further into some of those different parallels that we can draw. Uh, in really each of these chapters, we get to see some of those things. So here in the beginning of chapter 42, verse 1, it says, When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy from us there, uh, buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. So first thing we know is that there's grain in Egypt. They live in a time of famine. They need grain to survive. They need food. There's no food in their land. There's, there's, no, there's nothing that's bearing fruit. There's no ability to provide for themselves, and they need to go find grain. And there was a constant need for that. As they have a constant need for that, the word has gotten out that there's grain in Egypt. Why is there grain in Egypt? Because the Lord gave this vision to, or this dream to Pharaoh and an interpretation to Joseph who would say there's going to be famine, let's store up and prepare. You see how God has perfectly lined things up and now the word gets out that there's food, there's grain in Egypt and uh, there's an opportunity to get food there. And so here... The perspective of Jacob is there's hope in Egypt, right? He doesn't even have a clue all of the hope that there is in Egypt, right? He doesn't know that his son is alive in Egypt, but he just says there's grain in Egypt. Now, this discussion of Egypt and, and that to, to uh, Jacob's 10 sons, the word Egypt is a bad word. 
And that's the perspective that we see here in verse 1. When he saw that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? The translation would indicate, or it gives the wording here, is that why are you troubled or why are you perplexed at this conversation about Egypt? And the reality is, they're reminded of 20 years earlier that they sold their brother Joseph into slavery to these spice traders who were headed to Egypt. And so now here they start talking about Egypt, and you could get that idea that they're like, oh, don't say Egypt. Because they have been lying to their father about the whereabouts of their brother Joseph for 20 years not knowing at this point whether he was living or dead, but knowing that he was sold into slavery in Egypt. And so here, their perspective of Egypt is that of perplexity or concern. Why do you look at one another is to say, why are you perplexed with one another? They're, they're kinda, there's that look, and we know the look when somebody brings up something you don't want to hear about or you haven't talked about. It's like we don't talk about that. You kind of have that look like, no, 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 don't go there. And that's their perspective in this moment here, and he's asking the question. At the mention of Egypt, they were struggling. Nonetheless, Jacob sends them to Egypt, but not Benjamin. Lest calamity fall upon him. Now, clearly, <laughs> this is interesting, right? The rest of them were totally expendable, right? He's like, yeah, just go ahead. You guys go to Egypt. He actually sends them to Egypt. He says the word Egypt, and they're concerned about Egypt. And he's like, what are you worried about? Go to Egypt, but not Benjamin. Because I don't want anything bad to happen to him. If anything bad happens to you, it's fine. But not Benjamin, lest calamity come upon him. They were expendable. And Jacob, there's this series of, of events throughout history here in his life that has led him to play favorites, of course. And we've talked about that. In his own life, his parents had favorites. And so then he has favorites. And clearly, his favorite wife is Rachel. He has Four. His favorite wife is Rachel. His favorite children, Joseph and Benjamin, are the children of Rachel, his beloved wife, Rachel. And there's a, all of these things add up to him truly making it very clear. Joseph was his favorite, and his brothers got jealous about it, were angry about it, threw him in a pit, then decided instead of the pit, let's sell him into slavery, and have lived with this lie for 20 years, and now further... Jacob, playing favorites, is like, you all, you can be expendable. You go and you buy the grain from Egypt, but I'm not sending Benjamin with you because I care too much about him. But now further, through circumstances and through experience in life, Jacob is not very optimistic in general. He, he assumes that if he sends Benjamin, the worst is going to happen. He's been through enough in life. He's dealt with some pretty difficult things. If you remember, he spent 14 years, actually 20 years altogether, serving his uncle Laban. 
And now you fast forward and he's been through a lot. He's been tricked and he's had his, his brother as his greatest enemy for most of his life. And, and he's tricked his father and he's his, his used his mother and all these things he's gone through and experienced his li- in his life. He's got a totally you know, messed up family in, in the way that his, his sons have lived their lives and he, and now he's in this place of facing the worst case scenario constantly. That's his perspective. The worst case scenario is going to happen. And when you expect the worst, it's kind of hard to handle what's coming next, right? You have a, you have a negative attitude, right? You, you expect the worst is going to happen. You're not, you're not going into it with a good attitude, are you? Like, you guys go, it's going to be bad, don't take Benjamin. But it was based on things that he had dealt with in life, but the things that he had dealt with in life, he often brought upon himself. And now, based on the things, the decisions that he had made that had brought calamity upon himself, he was fearful of further bad things happening, and fear leads to bitterness. This fear and this expectation of the worst leads to bitterness and saying, no, I'm going to put up walls in my life. And, and as I put up walls, you all go and you can deal with whatever comes, but not Benjamin. Further, Jacob clearly did not trust his 10 sons to take care of Benjamin along the way. And sadly, In this lack of trust for his sons, he's lacking trust in God. He could trust God, but he didn't connect the dots of what God was doing. And the fact that there's famine, he could have sent his son Benjamin. Because God is faithful. He could have sent all 11 of them because God is faithful. Because God has a plan. God has a plan to provide. And this plan to provide was through Egypt. Where his son Joseph had gone before to prepare for the feeding. To prepare and to provide for the family. Jacob didn't know all that was going on, but God had it all worked out. He had no idea that his son had gone before to provide. But he would not send Benjamin, his beloved son, the son of his beloved wife, Rachel. And further, verse 5, then we see, and the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Now, the first thing that we see happening here, as they journeyed, they went to buy grain. Verse 6, as Joseph was the governor, how about that? 
Isn't that a coincidence? No, it's not a coincidence at all. That's what God does. He already prepared the way. And not only did he prepare the way to provide for his promised people, his beloved people, he provided a way, he prepared a way for them to be provided, but he prepared a way for reconciliation. He had it all set up. It's no coincidence. This is what God does. And it's no coincidence that Joseph is the governor. Joseph is the one who took care of all the food. He was the one who sold all the food to all the people who would come from all around because Egypt was prepared for the famine. And here's the one, Joseph, who then sees his brothers, and what do they do? Interesting, they bow down. Joseph had a dream, if you remember, that his brothers would bow down to him. And that's what got him thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. And now here it is. Isn't that a coincidence? No. In fact, that's what God had planned. Joseph had a lot to learn along the way. But he did not lose faith. He did not lose hope. He trusted in the Lord and in the Lord's timing throughout all of his problems, the pit, the slavery, the prison, all of the things that he had faced, it was all leading up to this point where he would be appointed as governor, where he would be in a place where his brothers would come and bow down because of their total desperation. And they didn't even know it was him. Joseph knew it was them but they didn't know it was him. And no doubt he was reminded of the dream that he had 20 years before. As he recognized them, though, he spoke as a stranger, and he actually spoke through an interpreter, not revealing that he knew their Hebrew language and he could even understand, which is further interesting as they start to speak to each other in Hebrew after this, and, and he knows everything that they're saying. He spoke through an interpreter, and he, he would not yet reveal his identity. It wasn't time yet for that. Further, verse 9, after they did not recognize him, then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are no spies. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. So Joseph remembered his dreams. And in this is a reminder those dreams, being reminded of these dreams in that moment, it's a reminder that the Lord is present. 
I'm sure it was a reminder from the Lord. It already said that he had dealt roughly. He had spoken roughly with them. He was like, oh, these guys, this is my chance. I'm going to get back at them. Because of them, I went from a pit to slavery to prison because of them. And so now is my chance. But then he remembered. As they bowed down, he remembered the dreams. A reminder from the Lord that he is present, that he is in control, that God keeps his promises. And we have seen throughout the entire book of Genesis the promises of God and how man would constantly lose sight of the promises of God and the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God. And man would constantly take matters into their own hands because they are doubting or questioning or misunderstanding or forgetting the promises of God. So here's Joseph in a moment, and in this moment there's an opportunity for him to forsake the promise of God and to forget the promises of God and to focus on his circumstance and the anger and the revenge that he could have on his brothers, but God reminds him of the dreams. And in that remembrance, he's reminded of how great God is. He's reminded of God's promise, and here it is. It's happening. His brothers are bowing down. What an amazing moment, a mind-blowing moment this must have been. And that's what he, it, the whole situation just changes for a moment, and then, he's, then he turns things on them, and he's got some challenges for them nonetheless. You are spies. In a sense, what he's saying, why are you here? Why have you come? And they plead their case in total desperation. No, we are honest men. Really? Are you? I mean, you could imagine if you're, you're Joseph and they're coming and saying, we're honest men. No, you're not. You've lived 20 years in a lie and it's about me. That's a hard thing to wrap your mind around. But then further, they, 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 try, they speak some truth here, right? Your servants are 12. In fact, there were 12 of us brothers. We're all of this one man. We're, we're sons of this one man. We're honest men. We have, we, we have another brother who's home with our father, and there was one more who is no more. As they bring that up, they're, they're learning to believe their own lie of the last 20 years. To say one is no more, speaking of Joseph. Further to say we are honest men, they're deceiving themselves. They, of course, were not honest men and had dealt with concealing a lie for 20 years. Further now, but Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you saying, you are spies. Now to say you are spies is really to say you are dishonest men. You're tricky guys. I've got you figured out. So he says that 
you are spies. In this manner, verse 15, you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. And Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confirmed confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So now here we have a test. We have terms of their release. Now they just showed up thinking we're going to buy food we don't like the idea of Egypt, but we're going to Egypt because dad told us to go to Egypt. He's mad at us because we didn't take care of Joseph. He won't let Benjamin come with us because he doesn't think we could take care of him. There's all these thoughts going on. Here we are. We've got to buy food. We've got to buy grain. We've got to be able to provide for our family. And Joseph is like, no, you're spies, and I've got a test for you. In fact, you're not, you're not getting... You're not, you're not getting it right now. And what you need to get is that you're not honest men. You need to understand that you're not honest men. And he would repeat that to say you have to prove your honesty. And he gives these terms of release and attest to them. This is how you're going to prove it. He's saying simply, okay, you say you're honest. Here's your opportunity to prove that you're honest. And further, your life is on the line. Do this and live. You want to show that you're honest, you get to prove it right here. And here's how you're going to prove it. You need to go get your youngest brother. But what he says as he starts is he says, for I fear the Lord. I fear God. This is a word of encouragement, honestly but they don't even realize it. They weren't thinking about the benefit of the fear of God. That would have been great for them right about now, to fear God rather than men. And Joseph even gives them opportunity, a glimpse into the fear of God. He's saying, for I fear the Lord. Do this and live, for I fear the Lord. I recognize, I have a reverence, I have an honor to God and because I honor God, I want to do his will. This is all that would be going on in his own mind. I don't, want to, I don't want to mess this up. So here's an opportunity for you to prove that you are honest men. They were too caught up in their own thoughts, too caught up in their own circumstances to see the value of the fear of God. But they now had to prove that they were, in fact, honest men. Joseph certainly had his doubts, rightfully so. And Joseph lays it out, and it says then that they did so. They agree to his terms, but 
they're not very optimistic of these terms because they know they're going to have to go and convince their father to release Benjamin to go with them to Egypt, something he already made very clear. He's not going because I don't want anything bad to happen to him. And now Benjamin is the one who is being called to go. They agree to these terms thinking to themselves, how are we going to convince dad to send Benjamin? But he says, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to this house. You go and carry grain. In this, there is mercy. You go and carry grain. Joseph wants to care for his family. He doesn't just keep them there and think, you know what? I'm so mad at you guys. I'm just going to let you rot in prison. But he shows mercy. He says, you know what? Just one can stay. And the rest of you go and carry the grain. Take it back so that they can fulfill what their mission was. And then further, he says, verse 20, and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. There's mercy here. Joseph shows mercy. Joseph had their livelihood in his hands. He had, had, according to human terms, he had every right to treat them miserably to repay evil for evil, but he said that he fears God. Because he fears God, he shows mercy. So now verse 21, it says, Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. And he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Some great conviction is setting in. We are truly guilty, they say. They are associating their sin with their current situation. They were already heightened at the talk of Egypt. Then the fact that they had to go to Egypt... They're worried about what's going to come back to get them in Egypt. From the beginning, they were perplexed about Egypt. Oh, we don't want to talk about Egypt. We certainly don't want to go to Egypt. But so now they show up in Egypt. They have this heightened emotion going on, heightened guilt going on. And now they're facing trouble in Egypt, which will lead to more trouble at home. All these dots are connecting as they have a harsh, harsh realization. Interesting, though, that a guilty conscience would easily see current trouble as a penalty of sin. 
If you have a guilty conscience about something and then something bad happens to you, you're like, ah, that's why. A guilty conscience will constantly point us back to our sin. And that's what's happening here. For 20 years, they've had a guilty conscience. And now that's very heightened because they're in Egypt. And they're remembering their brother Joseph and that they sold him to slavery in Egypt. And now here, they admit it. They confess it. They have this conversation with each other in Hebrew thinking that Joseph doesn't know what's going on. And he's like, oh, I know what they're saying. But in response to what they're saying, he turns to still conceal his identity at this point. But he turns and he weeps. It doesn't take much to convict us when we're guilty, but then out of this guilt and out of this anguish that they're speaking of, Joseph wept because he loved his brothers after all they had done. Joseph wept because he had compassion on his brothers who were so terrible to him. Joseph wept because he hated to see his brothers suffer. He wept because he hated to see their doubt. He wept because he hated to see the effect of sin in their lives. Similar to when Jesus wept. Jesus wept at the doubt that people had. Jesus wept at the effect of sin and the sting of death. Reminding us once again that Joseph is, of course, a type of Christ here in the Old Testament. There's so many pictures of Christ throughout the story of Joseph. And this must have been a very intense interaction among these brothers for Joseph to just hear what's going on and to weep. He saw not just, it wasn't just a conversation. He saw the anguish, the suffering that they were going through because of concealing their sin for so long. The anguish that they were dealing with because of how they had treated their brother Joseph and now connecting these dots and now he has compassion on them and still has to conceal it. But you know, what's going on here is there's deep conviction going on. In this deep conviction, there is deep cleansing going on. And this deep cleansing would bring forth or bring opportunity for reconciliation among brothers. That was God's plan. Reconciliation is always God's plan. When God created man and he put him in the garden, there was unity, there was oneness, there was beautiful fellowship between God and man. Sin broke that fellowship. And from the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, God made a plan for redemption. 
and reconciliation between God and man, bringing them back together, has always been the plan. And here it is. The plan wasn't just for them to be provided with grain. That's a blessing. That's a need. And God will do exactly that. He will meet the needs along the way. But the plan is for reconciliation. And reconciliation takes some deep cleaning sometimes. And deep cleaning requires deep conviction. We can't clean up a mess unless we look at and admit how dirty it is. Right? Sometimes we like, you know what, I'm just going to sweep the floor. But sometimes you got to mop the floor. Right? Uh, we got four kids, you know that. So oftentimes there's spills. There's juice. Juice is sticky. One, a couple, last week or two weeks ago, somebody spilled some Sprite on the floor. That is a mess. It's one of the most sticky substances there is. We can't just get down there and wipe it with a paper towel. That would be not admitting that there's a real mess to clean up. Just wipe it up with a paper towel and hope that it'll be okay. No, you've got to spray it or you've got to mop it and you've got to really dig deep to clean it, to make it whole, to make it right. Otherwise, your feet are going to get stuck to the floor. You have to admit the need for cleaning to bring reconciliation. We have to admit the, the need for deep cleansing to go on so there's conviction, true conviction, that would lead to reconciliation. Deep conviction brings deep cleaning, which brings reconciliation between God and man through the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful picture we see here. God's plan was reconciliation. Verse 25. <clears throat> then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain to restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Not Maybe what has God done for us? Their hearts were deceived. Their hearts failed them. They were filled with, as it would translate, they were filled with terror. At the sight of their money being restored, they were filled with terror. Now, full circle here, they sold Joseph out of a love for money and power. Now they were terrified at the sight of money. They mistook this even. The, their money was restored to them. This is, going, this is an, an abundant blessing for them, yet their heart failed them, and they were filled with fear 
misunderstanding even this opportunity for a blessing. They were filled with fear. But you know they needed to be filled with fear at the sight of money. They needed to not be concerned about the money or the power or the, the, the position that they had been so longing for for such a long time. So they were filled with this fear of what was before them. In verse 29 then, they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man who is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are honest men, we are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for your famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Now, again, they tell their father of everything that had happened, minus the truth about Joseph being sold into slavery. This is still, still something they were not ready to face. They had been convicted. They faced deep conviction Yet, what did they do with that conviction? They just went on their way. They responded in fear, and now they come to their father still concealing their sin. Not open with him about what had happened. And this is what has been happening from the beginning. Hiding, concealing sin. And this sin was later to be exposed, of course, but not yet. So here they are trying to conceal it further, telling this, uh, the situation to their father. And now it happened, verse 35, as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they, when, when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Now again, they have fear because they thought it was just one man's money. But now they find out it's all of their money that's been restored. Worried that they would be mistaken for thieves on top of already being accused as spies in the country. And Jacob's response to this is that he blames his sons. There's so much distrust for his 10 sons. I mean, he, he instantly assumed that they had done something wrong. You have bereaved me. Look at what's going on here. This is all on you. We lost Joseph. We lost Simeon. And now you want to take Benjamin. I already told you you can't take Benjamin because I don't want anything bad to happen to him. And now you're telling me you have to take Benjamin, but look at what you've done. And you're going to not only be mistaken as spies, but thieves as well, because look at here's the money. The evidence is clear. And you say you're honest men. 
But instantly, he doesn't, it's not about his sons. He says, all is against me. You have bereaved me, and all things, all these things are against me. Which isn't true, of course. A, a perspective that's just false and, and so easy. When things are difficult, when circumstances are terrible, what is our response oftentimes? All things are against me. That's what we think. And we may have done so many things to bring on pain and suffering, but yet we say, everything and everybody is against me, and we play the victim card constantly. That's what Jacob's doing. He's not concerned about how his sons are doing in the moment. He's not concerned about all of the things in his life that have led up to this dysfunctional family, but rather he's saying everything's against me and everybody's against me. He's not taking responsibility. All is against me. But in fact, it's just false. That perspective that all is against me as a believer in Jesus Christ is a straight up lie from the devil. In fact, he is for us. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things against me, that victim mentality is a lie. Sure, circumstances are difficult, sometimes seemingly impossible. But what Jacob didn't know as that there is just blessing going on here. What Jacob didn't know is that his son has been in Egypt preparing the way. What Jacob didn't know is that God had a plan for reconciliation all along and that they would be restored and that God would be keeping his promise. But he was caught up in a moment. Interesting to look at the contrast between Jacob and Joseph. Joseph, who had been thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, wrongfully accused and thrown into prison, and now, all along, trusting the Lord. Being put then in this place of authority and leadership to govern the land, to be put in this place to prepare the way for his family. Jacob was lacking trust in God, in God's promises, God's plans, and God's timing. Joseph, he trusted along the way. God's promises, God's plan, and God's timing. Verse 37. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then 
you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Reuben speaks up here, and Reuben makes an empty, mindless promise. Kill my two sons. Well, that's ridiculous. It's, ridic- it's a ridiculous offer, and it w- it's ridiculous to assume that Jacob would agree to that. Those are his grandsons, by the way. But interestingly enough, it's the first time someone is taking any sort of responsibility and making any sort of promise, an empty one at that, but there's some sort of responsibility here. Reuben is saying, look, we're going to make it happen. And perhaps what Reuben is thinking is this is the way that we're going to cover over or atone for the last 20 years. Jacob in his response is, my son shall not go down with you. There's still no trust. Lacking trust and lacking love and compassion on all of his sons. He's just looking again at Joseph and Benjamin. You are, I already lost one son, and now my son is not going with you. Reuben is his son. He's got 10 other sons. No, my son is not going with you. There's no trust. There's no compassion. There's no love. There's no grace. And there's no trust in the Lord. Trusting the Lord's promises, the Lord's plans, and the Lord's timing. Because God had a plan for reconciliation that he would be missing out on if he doesn't eventually do this. And here's what happens, guys. The next chapter, well, I'm not going further into it, but God continues the famine to bring further desperation because sometimes that's what we need to finally do what's necessary. What was necessary here was to send Benjamin to Egypt. And it took further famine to bring total desperation for Jacob to agree to that. We need to realize for ourselves we are completely desperate. And there's purpose for the famine. And there's purpose for the suffering. And there's purpose for all the things and the the circumstances that we face in life. There is purpose. And the purpose is for reconciliation. The purpose is to give us perspective on eternity, on eternal things, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus and the plan that he has in store for us. And not to just be so focused on ourselves and our own problems and to victimize ourselves and to say, all is against me and my son will not go and shall not go with you. Is to say, I don't trust. And I am the victim. But we need a different perspective. To know that all things do work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And to trust that God has a perfect plan in store. And his ways are not our ways. Nor his thoughts our thoughts. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways and his thoughts higher than ours. Our minds are so finite and we get so caught up in the circumstance and thinking that things are so difficult or so impossible and, and there's no way that this giving Benjamin or sending Benjamin is going to bring any sort of change, but rather it's just going to lead to more pain and suffering. We need to get that out of our mind. Surrendering that which is most valuable to us is actually going to bring the greatest results, the greatest reconciliation. To surrender ourselves is going to bring us near to God. And that's what we need. We need nearness. We need fellowship with God. Stop fighting it based on our circumstance. Stop justifying based on our circumstances why we're far from God or why we're keeping him at arm's length because we don't want to lose what we think we have. But surrender to him. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what he desires. That's what he calls for. And we have the opportunity to have that fellowship with him. Let's pray. Lord, we trust in you. And we thank you that you are faithful and that you keep your promises. Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and to to walk in your ways, to trust that you are faithful, to trust that your ways are good. And you desire fellowship. Lord, give us a greater desire for fellowship with you. Let us see you glorified in our lives, Lord. Give us rem reminders of how great you are. Give us reminders of your promises and the fulfillment of those things, Lord. 